Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Deborah. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, I am sitting in my local uh, local diner enjoying a soda pop, and I'm going to order a cheeseburger here in a few minutes after, uh, after we're finished. Uh, but uh, I'm delighted that you had an opportunity to sit down with me and have this conversation here on the podcast. Uh, Deborah, before we start our conversation, before we talk about whatever big idea or bold opinion you've got for us today, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm uh, Deborah Bond-Gore. I've been a professional fundraiser here in uh, in uh, Canada for 
uh, 32 years to be exact. I transitioned from the, as, as of my ilk or my generation, I transitioned from the for-profit sector with a fairly extensive uh, background in marketing and communications and uh, made the transition because I was tired of, as I often say, tired of selling high-priced shoes to women who should know better and, uh, and do something more purposeful with my life. And so that's led me to the sector. Uh, and uh, I've been doing that uh, very successfully over in small charities, large charities, national charities, provincial charities. I've been the only person in the shop and the leader of a whole group of people. And I've been the CEO and, uh, you know, all of the other uh, hats that one must wear uh, in this sector to really uh, make a difference. And I uh, have enjoyed it. I found it fruitful. But I have to tell you that as I've thought about it in um, in the year I tried to retire, which didn't work out too well, by the way, because uh, I've gone back to consulting, uh, I, I really found myself having two great thoughts. And the first thought was, you know, I feel like I've spent my life uh, putting buckets under the rain dripping in through the roof of social justice and social society. Uh, but at the same time, I know that through action and drive that things can be done and things can be done better. And uh, what we need is a new, bold, brave way of looking at things. Deborah, I have to ask you before we dive into uh, – you've already got me sort of wondering what your big idea is going to be for us today. But I have to ask you, I have I have noticed something so – we're this is probably airing is conversation number probably somewhere in the range of number 325 or something um there's a generation of people that are are three decades in so like yourself you've described yourself as as being three decades into a, a fundraising career and they seem to have an angst about where fundraising is today differently than perhaps the way you felt about fundraising that first say decade in um do you do you kind of every everyone I've talked to it seems like who would who would describe themselves as being thirty years in has an angst. That's sort of that underlying sort of description that I would describe that particular cohort. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I I just recognize that we've spent a lot of our time in that thirty year period uh, justifying our existence to the detriment of actually yeah. doing something. And doing yeah. something as as massive of things as we could have done uh, with our individual portfolios, our individual lives, our individual uh, careers, uh, and as a sector, we focused more on uh, sort of the mechanics, uh, to uh-huh. want of a better word, and the tactics of fundraising, as opposed to the dream uh, that fundraising was to me uh, when I started it, uh, which was you know the better world, the big difference. The end of this, the end of that, the end of the other thing. And part of it, I mean, the first time I heard, for example, a phrase cost for dollar raise was introduced to me by fellow fundraisers in the healthcare sector who felt like they had to judge that they were producing mm-hmm. a great ROI. So all of these terms, right. investment, this, this, I feel has been our own professional angst, our own personal angst about the role we play, the isolation we feel, and the fact that nobody appreciates us. So we're going to go and figure out a way to make people appreciate us no matter what. Yeah, that, that's it's interesting the way you just described that because um, you're, I'm sure you're following some of my um, – I'm paralleling a lot of my thinking and my writing with Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. 
And um, commentators who write about the story of Dorothy and her experiences in the land of Oz describe it as sort of a letdown. There's sort of a, a disillusionment and a disappointment with what she saw. You know, she wanted to get on the other side of the rainbow because she thought she would experience things. Um, and so I've, I've thought a number of times, and, and, and this is all woven into some of the writing that I'm working on, that were a lot like Dorothy, sort of disillusioned with like some of what you just said. We, we sort of expected it to be something more than it is or, or what it could be. And, um, and that we're all just anxiously trying to get back to Kansas because it's sort of become a letdown. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, but I think what drove me back from the retirement was that I realized while I was here, I was fundamentally concentrating on myself, my own sense of being, right? And and yeah. knowing that I had transformative impacts where I was, myself as one individual. And yeah. And what I'm saying is that that one individual, that one granular little drop in the bucket of changing the world is sort of where I come at from everything. If I can be granular and in my, in my granular nature become part of the solution, right, the solution to a lot of things, can I yeah. get other people to jump into the pool and let their little sugar dissolve until we really do make a difference? And are we at a point, are we at a point, uh, given what's just taken place in the last years and what's taking yeah. place right now, where perhaps the collective will might be there or could be nurtured or could be uh, or could be inspired to do something grander and greater than uh, we can do individually. Okay. You've got me warmed up and I'm, I'm uh, I've heard enough. I'm excited to hear what your big idea. We ask our, our guests to come on with a big idea or bold opinion. Um, I've heard, I've heard six minutes now of, of sort of maybe what is a precursor to what that, that might be. What do you have for us today? Well, I'm, I'm uh, kind of, uh, you know, to use a game analogy, just to get to the males in the crowd. It's kind of time, I think, uh, in our sector, but maybe in the world for general, for the, the great toying cost, uh, toss to occur, okay? The flipping of perspective so that we can actually start to move on regenerative design of organizations, of policy, of practices, of purpose, uh, to really move forward, move the, not just move the needle an inch, but jump it, jump it into the positive sector. And uh, what I've seen around me uh, through COVID, partially through COVID, and now what I'm watching in uh, and observing uh, in uh, the Ukraine, you know, with an un- another unnecessary war, but I've, right. there's things that are happening that are different. They're very, very different. I think in the human experience, COVID has brought a lot of us back to recognize recognizing the interconnectivity of us all, right? That neighbor yeah. helping neighbor, friend helping friend, uh, that we normally only experience some of us in face of a disaster, whether, you know, or a, or a, a, you know, a neighborhood fire or whatever. We've now experienced worldwide and we've, the interconnected uh, connectivity, and the negative results can come from it, but the positive results that we each have been able to contribute to by getting away from this sort of, uh, don't get me wrong, uh, dear American friends, but this rugged individualistic interpretation yep. of what your yep. life is supposed to be to the interpretation of what your life is really supposed to be, which is being there for each other, learning from each other, growing with each other, and loving each other. And by doing the collective good, we do. everybody moves forward together. I would never have expected in my lifetime to see governments across the world shut their economies down. Never would have expected it, but we did it. And did we yeah. survive it? Yes, we did. Uh, 
And the same thing is now happening with a different purpose. And it's even given me greater hope that there is this possibility to coalesce around a real positive change. And that is the way the world has responded to this invasion, uh, war, whatever you call it. Uh, and it hasn't, you know, hasn't responded in the typical fashion, which is I'm going to, you know, you hit me with a stick. I'm going to shoot you with a gun. It's right. responded using the tools at its disposal, the inventiveness of the human mind and the actual systems and organizations and coalesced everyone's effort into, if not defeating, at least making it impossible for Putin to come out of this as a winner and, and, and to see Sweden do what Sweden has done to do. And right. it's not, to, and it's not just governments, individual people that are pouring their hearts out and standing in cold and doing all of the things that individuals are doing and businesses in a way that I haven't, for all the corporate philanthropy there is in the world, I haven't seen businesses endorse a government policy in full with full, full page ads in a newspaper until this has happened. And say, we'll put our money where our mouth is and where you're putting our efforts and bring more immigrants to our country. All of the things I had never seen before. And what that said to me, Jason, is simply this. If, indeed, we all have, as humanity, we have one major challenge or one major threat, which I do believe we have, which is the actual destruction of the world that we have created through climate change. Can we come out of this? And with a few inspirational leaders, perhaps, but more importantly, with a collective will, address this issue. And like our, the president of the Ukraine said, don't drop of him on the wall. Put a picture of your children on the wall and do everything that you can to make sure they're still breathing 10 years from now. I just, Deborah, I just had a conversation. I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on some of the various different sort of directions this conversation could go, but I'm also reflecting on the conversation I just had with my students at the college this morning Mm -hmm. um, as it relates to everything that's sort of playing out in our world and as it relates to everything that, um, and and my students are not nearly as versed, they're not versed at all with some of the challenges that we're sort of encountering in our sort of microcosm of what we call professional fundraising. But I kind of wonder, I kind of wonder if in between the lines of what you're saying to us this afternoon is... Is are some of our challenges in fundraising, our specific challenges is in fundraising, and, and, and I'm also reflecting on sort of how you teed up the conversation with the idea that some of the disappointment that you encountered when you when you're in a training and we immediately go to things like return on investment and we start talking about sort of the marketization of the sector and those sorts of things is is part of the disappointment that comes with our work in this in fundraising actually a consequence of really not understanding why the sector itself exists in the first place do you follow what i'm asking yeah yeah i do and uh i don't think i i think that's partially true um uh-huh. i have never understood why we st- why we still need the sector in a world where we could do uh, things differently, but the nature of all of these systems that have been designed right in in the uh, worldwide have uh, sort of a, I call it the father knows best principle behind them right yeah there's 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 one there's one person who'll walk home and knock on the door and come through and solve all of the problems of the world for us right and um i hate to tell you when that show was on the air i was young enough to watch it and i can guarantee you dad solved nothing mom solved all the problems because she had to deal with them at, again at that very basic level that basic nurturing level and fundraising is like that when it's really working at its best it's not about money 
Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not about money at all. It's about it's about in and I and I'm going to use a business term, but it is about investment. It is about investing yourself. It's about investing your resources. It's about investing your time. It's about investing your ego and 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 in, in something that isn't going to reap a reward for you or return a you know a buy you a new car or anything else that our capitalistic system tells us are important to make us whole human beings but it is the thing it is the thing on the day that we're lying on our deathbed we'll remember as something that we did what was that was important that was really okay 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 i think it's extraordinary profound what you just said a few minutes ago about the idea that it, that it sort of surprises you that the nonprofit sector still has to exist, but is part of the reason that the sector still has to exist today and therefore is some of what is sort of what it is about fundraising that consistently lets us down. The fact that the sector itself has never allowed ourselves to sort of uh, to our full potential and, and, and sort of put ourselves out of business. If we actually stop trying to mimic my critique in the, in the midst of the pandemic, I had this conversation with a number of podcast guests. I said, why does the nonprofit sector in the midst of these messy, unpredictable, complex times like the midst of a pandemic, why do we expect the marketplace and the governments to bail us out? Why haven't we sort of learned how to operate sort of like counter cyclical and, and realize that when the world sort of falls apart, like it's doing right now in the midst of this incident in Ukraine, that's where we're supposed to show up. And not be constantly asking the other sectors to sort of, you know, to bail us out of these things. But I don't know that we're living up to that potential. We're not. We're not. And, and that's part of my thinking on the great toying costs. When I, when I say that, it's because if you take a look at everything about our models, as, and as the father knows best philosophy of it all, is that from the government's governance structure through the management structure all the way down to the way we treat, uh, let's say, the recipients of our services, it comes from a place of oversight, a place of control, a place of uh, directing, okay? So our whole model is about that, where if you reverse, flip the, the focus, so everything's inward, inward and downward, inward and downward, inward and downward, inward and downward, and all you get by that is you drive the nail through the through the board, but you're not you're not necessarily connecting the two pieces, right? So how do you change that? We have to change what the perspective, right? So all of our perspective has to be much more about um, caring, okay, about connecting and about guiding. So how do we flip our board so that their role is now not looking inward at us, not looking down at our bottom line, not analyzing our, you know, this, that, and the other policy and procedure, but actually are recruited to the board or to the inspirational leadership of the organization, which is what I'd like to see boards be as opposed to what they are, and where I'd like to see leadership be as opposed to where they are which is this outward and upward facing to see the possibility, to see the potential and to strategically dream, not strategically plan. Okay. So you're, okay. So you're saying that we've got it and I'm, and I'm reflecting again on my, on my own writing project right now, but is essentially what you're saying is we've got to work ourselves out of the, the, you know, the, the, arrogance of old white guys during the enlightenment and the industrial revolution and we've got to actually you know see ourselves in the 21st century um is that is that is that some of what you're getting at is that is I, i'm trying to make sure i follow the logic of the coin toss 
Um, I, I think we have, I think we have so much inherited bad logic from men that wanted men. I mean, men, these were, these were old white men and who wanted to basically predict control. And I think these are two words you've used predicting Uh control and create highly efficient machines. And I don't think that the work that we're supposed to be doing in the nonprofit sector. So also it's not supposed to be a machine at all. That's not what human beings are. And and none of what we do is going to ever be all that efficient. No, it's not. And it's because we're not, you know, we talk about all kinds of words around it, but we are an organic functioning thing. We came in the we came yes. into being nine nine and a half times out of ten from an, a need or a, a a seed that needed to be planted and nurtured and grown. And we're very or we should be very organic and and really good charities, high impact charities, right? And uh, take away the big schools and the big hospitals and all of those parts. But the, the guys functioning on on the very grassroots level of it. That's what they are. They're organic. And I watched the small, I was just recently just finished a contract with a very small, the smallest organization I ever worked for. And I watched us adapt and flex and become stronger in the face of adversity and, and, and grow our revenue on our own by using the circumstances we found, we found around us add to our message, right? So, when we talked about our children needing this, we talked about what we found out through the pandemic, which is our children are all have disabilities and they were, we were teaching them and they were learning and we had to go online like everybody else. But how does a kid who sees his friend at the end of an iBook who wants to hug him not just destroy the iBook by hugging them, right? And how does the kid who hasn't got access to the internet, what happens to them? So we started to talk about the, the gap between the haves and the have nots. Only I called it what it is. It's an abyss, right? It's a never-ending abyss. And even though one might not see how that related, it it correlated perfectly. It's like the environment and children with disabilities. There's interconnectedness in all of our causes and all of the things we do. And in order for us to be adaptable and flexible, we have to be organic, which comes again from, you know, you can call it a coin toss, you can call it whatever. But I'd like to see everybody's head looking up. Put the tail where it belongs, that's behind the dog, not in front of the dog, and let us look forward, not just to the century, not just to the changes we need to make to adapt, but where, oh, where do we want to be? And what do we have to have to pay place to get there? Okay, so you, you evidently work with clients very similarly to the way that I do, and I constantly feel like, Deborah that I'm trying to work them out. I, I love the idea that you put the notion of we got to get sort of planning off the table, if you will. Um, h- how do you teach? How do we design? How do we design in accordance with everything you've said to us in the last 20 odd minutes? How do we design fundraising, contemporary fundraising thought to be more, to be more, for example, like those smaller organic institutions that you're describing. I have always thought, I I share that, I share that same idea. I have always thought that the local, smaller grassroots organizations are more true to what it means to be in this sector. But we have these large, we're always allowing, you go to a case conference, you go to an AFP conference, you go to Congress, you go to one of these larger meetings. We're always letting the people that sort of speak from the platform be those larger institutionalized sort of nonprofits that are not talking about fundraising the same way you or I might want our, you know, the small grassroots organizations to talk about it. Am I right? 
you know, you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, I, I think I mentioned in my comments that I learned everything I needed to know about, uh, almost everything living in my family. Right. So, uh, and growing up as the second youngest of nine. Right. And, and the, the role of intuition in your life, the role of emotional connection in your life gets lost in the tactics of anything. Okay. Uh, whether you're talking about good customer service in a retail setting, or you're talking about good stewardship of donors money, or you're talking about good care of your staff, it is heavily reliant on your emotional intelligence, your intuition, and your basic own sense of humanity, right? And when you start teaching tactics, right, you lose all of those connectivities because there is a way to do everything in a tactical way. Do A, follow it by B, add C, and get Z as your result. Right. Right. Jump the whole alphabet. Right. And when you do that, there's a tactical way to do everything. There's a transactional way to do everything. But the way to do this is the engagement of the heart, mind, body, the holistic, organic approach. Truly, truly generous people, truly, truly generous people that I've met hundreds of them don't have their names on buildings. They don't have to be offered anything to be truly generous. Generosity is inbred in all of us, actually whether we know it or not, right? Yeah. And, and, and what you should be as a fundraiser is a nurturer of generosity, a nurturer of connectivity, a, conner- a nurturer of meaning, not a tactician who can draw, get money out of a stone. I can do that. I've done it. I've, I've written a business case that raised me $11 million for a charity whose – it wasn't my idea of what charity is, right? the way it operated but i I changed the tactics to approach the situation that's adapting that's flexing that's i did my job right i they wanted six million i got them 11 and a half whoopee good for me i had no personal satisfaction in the process i had no great joy even though the building went up i had (laughs) i had none of those things and i don't think any of the donors did either right and 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 nor any of the volunteers who run the committee so it's 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 creating experiential uh, travel and everything in the terms of experiential learning, right? And and inside our charity, we've got to give everybody that experience. And it has to start our leadership. We're demanded by contractor law to, to have a board. Well, just don't put a yeah. person there who's got time, t- uh, talent, and treasure and think that they're going to do the good things that need to be done. They're not going to hire yeah. the right CEO. I can guarantee you that because they don't ever, hardly. Uh, they're, they're not going, they're not going to be able to stand in a crowd and talk about your work with any kind of passion or commitment the way they can talk about their new BMW, right? It's just, it, we, we focus on all of the wrong things and we produce results, but we don't produce really healthy outcomes either for ourselves or for our organization or for the people and the, and the places we're trying to help. It's why we have this, you know, paternalistic idea that we can solve we, the white savior. All of those things we put names to really comes from the fact that we just don't know how to be human in these situations that are that are rife with anxiety and fear. And you know, I can't ask for money. I mean, how many times have you heard that, right? And and my answer is, I've never asked for money. What I've done is told a story and engaged somebody in that story and put a human face to something or a dog's face, whatever it is you want to do. But 
It's just so much more. And we focused, I taught fundraising, by the way. I developed a, a, a course and, and uh, for a, a, a local college here. And when I did it, I wanted to solve one problem, which is the lack of understanding of what it takes to to be a charity, to be, to start something entrepreneurial in your head. And it is entrepreneurial uh, at its very core. It's a good idea with a market already pre-described by need and all of those things. And teach somebody how to put that together in a way, in a classroom setting, with all of the tactics associated with it to getting all of those things, you pieces you need to complete the puzzle. But instead of concentrating on the paint-by-numbers kit, Right where I produce the piece of art because I put the right color in the right thing. Let's look at the whole big picture, why it is you want to do it, you know, how you're going to do it, where it's going to take you, and what difference is it going to make. And when you come at are teaching we, that, it makes a difference. Deborah, are we talking about, so everything that I'm writing, the conversations we're having here on the podcast, the road show that we're hoping to get back on the calendar here now that the pandemic's sort of getting out of our way, is all driven towards this assumption on my part that in order for us to achieve some of this, and this has been woven into our whole conversation today, and, and you sort of landed on this point here a few minutes ago, fundraising in many ways has created what I oftentimes refer to as master technicians, right? We've got these we've got these extraordinarily highly technically trained individuals who are into this line of work largely because it delivers on a level of professionalization and credentials and they're just master technicians. But I don't know that there's a lot of them out there. Uh, Some people took issue recently with some things that I've said on social media about the fact that 80% of the people that I think are applying for these these all this constant flow of availability of jobs, I don't think actually want to have the types of conversations that you're suggesting we need to be having in order to compel that that extraordinary generosity, for example. Um, my question is, is are we talking about a different fundraiser going forward and perhaps a different fundraiser that's going to have to look very differently in order to sort of to sort of meet some of the expectations you and I are talking about? Uh, yeah, I think they're people, they have to be people yeah. first and, and fundraisers is like fundraiser. What is that? Um, it's like the, the terms we use. I mean, the terminology we put us in all of the stuff is divisive. Okay. Everything and everything yeah. we put labels on becomes divisive in a society and yes. in our occupations and in our jobs. So we label everything, right? So I'm a yeah. fundraiser and I call you a philanthropist when your gift is a million bucks and you get your picture in the newspaper, right? Yeah. When yeah. your when your gift is this, it's that. When it's when it's a, a ten dollars, it's this kind of a gift. And when it's a hundred thousand dollars, it's a major gift. Everything we do denigrates the whole act of giving, right? And what yeah. is giving? Yeah. It's sacrifice, right? That's what it is. It's something I've got in my pocket that I could be keep for myself and buy a chocolate bar, or I could give it to my best friend in kindergarten who doesn't have any milk money for lunch. Right. And our intuitive instinct is to give it to our friend who doesn't mm-hmm. have money for it. Right. And that's where we start. Right. 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 But now we've turned right. it into and that's where it always remains for the person giving, truly giving. That's that's where it always remains. It's that sense of I helped my friend today. I loved somebody today. I hugged somebody today. We've taken the emotionality out of what is life. 
by trying to turn what is one of the most rewarding experiences in life, which is to help someone else, even at a cost to yourself, right? We're looking at it in, in at the Ukraine and we're calling them heroes. We called the frontline healthcare workers heroes because they went, they're not, they're human beings who care. That's all they are. And there's a lot of us out here. Right. There's a lot of us out here who care, I think, in some degree or another. It's a question of whether we feel comfortable as human beings to actually put that heart back out on the sleeve and have it stomped on every now and then. Because in order to do the work, a work of a really good fundraiser, in my opinion, the no that you hear is as important to you as the yes that you receive. And that relationship and that conversation gets tucked away in your heart and makes you better at who you are the next time around, even though the dollars may not follow. Have we, I'm, I'm testing some of my ideas that I'm writing about with you. I'm getting your feedback on some of them. Getting through the lens of everything you just said and, and thinking and reflecting on sort of the, the underlying critique that we've offered today and looking at what's playing out in the Ukraine and also looking at what we've experienced for the last two, two or three years in the midst of the pandemic. Is fundraising going to sort of reach a new level of potential if we move from seeing our donors as what I call consumers and start having more citizen-oriented based, citizen-based fundraising, which is to say that that isn't part of what is so compelling about the narrative, as tragic as it as it is with what's happening in the Ukraine, is part of what is also compelling about that is that we all feel like we're citizens of the Ukraine right now. That, yep. that 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 we sort of that it's a place so it's place based one of the things i'm talking about in the forthcoming book is that fundraising needs to be more place based and 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 we need to seek after justice and you can't find justice unless you're actually in a place justice is often found in places it's not just in random sort of efficient spaces if you will does that make sense yeah it makes huge sense and it's like it's to me it's what are, what are the images coming out of the Ukraine that people are finding inspiring. Well, one of those images, they look at the leader and he says, you know, there he is. He's the leader and he's put on fatigues. But, you know, George Bush put on a jacket and went on the warship. Didn't look very leaderly to me. Uh, But this guy, (laughs) well, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, you can put the costume on, right? It's the question of whether you're delivering. And so when, when unlike the costume, he speaks to the Russian people to tell them, you know, we're brothers and sisters. And why would you want to keep, you know, beating up on your family and, and don't believe what you're being told by your mom and dad, because everybody in your family is equal and good. And, you know, you shouldn't be doing this just because mom and dad tell you, you should, Uh, you know, that whole, that whole sort of basis of, of, of thinking in that, but the images that are res and, but then he turns around and says something today, you know, don't put my picture on a wall, put the picture of my ch- of your children on the wall. That's right. I'm not, That's right. I'm, not a, I'm not a hero. I'm not a leader. You know, little grandmother standing in front of uh, in front of a fully clothed tactician, that's the way our police look on our streets these days, which doesn't help anything either, but says to them, here, take these sunflower seeds. So at least when you, you know, you die, you'll be doing something good for the Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's that kind of courage. That kind of humanity, that sort of saying, and yes, they're fighting for a place and, and they're fighting for their home, and they're, and they're, but they're fighting for their children, right? They're fighting for the future they want them to have. And if we can come out of all of this at the end of the day with one great big focus and put that kind of energy towards solving the environmental problem, 
the world will be a better place, you know. But it's that collection, that insp- inspirational collection. And unlike the leaders of the past, the Winston Churchills and the fireside chats, the president of the Ukraine reflects that simple, common, decent human being, a father, and his and his wife standing side and his wife standing side by side with their children, with their people. Right? Does, Not in the does fundraising at its best teach us on both the giving and the receiving side that we're all Ukrainian? Yeah, it does. That's exactly what it does. It's like yeah. it's it's why some causes can, you know, resonate. It's like when they say everybody knows somebody who's got cancer, right? And so money pours into cancer because everybody does know somebody who has had cancer, right? Everybody yeah. has an experiential has an experiential thing. Whereas you talk to somebody about, you know, another awful, devastating, disgusting disease called ALS. Right. Yeah. And you can't, yeah. you can't, you, you don't relate because the odds of knowing somebody with ALS are, you know, minuscule in comparison to cancer. So your experience with that is not as rich. So the fundraiser's role, in my opinion, is to distill that down to a, uh, to something someone can understand. And in the case of ALS, when I, you know, the one thing I had to get at was this de- terrible degenerative disease. How would I describe it to people? So I asked a young man who is 40 with ALS, and I said, what's it like for you to have this disease? He was a firefighter, football player, all of those wonderful things. And he said, Deborah, it's like living in a glass coffin and watching your, watching you destroy your own family's financial and mental health. Yeah. Wow, I, Deborah, I did. I, Deborah, I did not know we were going to get here today. We lose our listeners at about forty minutes in, um, and I think this conversation is quite profound and very timely in a variety of ways for for a very obvious reasons, but perhaps for our for our fundraising community um, as well as sort of the broader conversation. Um, if somebody's listening to us today and they want to reach out and continue the conversation with you, Deborah, which it oftentimes happens, people are, I don't hear from our guests a whole lot, but our, the people on your side of the seat, uh, the, your side of the conversation often do hear from, um, from our listeners. How would you suggest that they do that? And then I guess my other question is, as you sort of answer that question, who do you want to hear from? You're, you're, you do consulting, you work with charitable, charitable organizations. Who is that person that's listening today? Is it that small grassroots organization in Toronto or is it an organization here in the U.S. where I'm seated? Who do you want to hear from? I want to I want to hear from almost anybody who's interested in, in uh, being uh, Yoda. There's no try. Just do or do not. Yeah. So I'm interested. Yeah. And I mean, I said in the beginning, I lifted myself out of retirement where I, life was really quite pleasant. Don't get me wrong, because sitting yeah. on the sidelines at a time where I actually see the possibility of making a phenomenal difference in the whole sector coming together to solve something and the joy that would come out of that and the inspiration that that would leave behind. And the fact that since I had a large role as a boomer in destroying the planet, I want to save it. Uh, those are the... <laughs> Those are the people I want to, the doers and not the, not the people who say it's too big or, or any of those things because it's not in the doing is in doing it one, one, one small moment at a time. And uh, that's where all good things come from. Uh, one small moment at a time. Well, Deborah, I am going to let you go. I'm going to uh, order my cheeseburger so that our friends here at the local diner don't think that I've just uh, hijacked their booth without uh without offering them some business. Uh, I'll enjoy. We will put, 
Yeah, we will put uh, we will put contact information in the show notes so people can reach out to you. Uh, Deborah, you're always welcome back. Oh, thanks, Jason. Lovely speaking with you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.